And these electrons are being stored in the same muscle tissue, just like a rechargeable battery. Now these electrons are shuttled on the fascia, which is the wiring system of the body, and it's shuttled into organs and cells for cellular regeneration. I'm Michael Max, and this is Geological, the podcast that connects the voices of our East Asian medicine community. You know, there's a lot of drama these days. Hurt feelings, frustrations, tinder dry emotion reserves ready to flare into an outrage. It's as if culturally and individually, we've lost the ability to somehow regulate our discomfort. One spark lands on that dry tinder and our story machine turns out malice and ill will. It's frighteningly easy to see the obvious stupidity of those idiots over there. All you gotta do is turn on any news source, scroll any social media, Listen to the echo chamber of your own mind, and there it is, the acrid edge of hatred. It's so temptingly easy to see it in others, and so difficult to observe and sit with it in ourselves. I'm not sure why it is so difficult when I run up against something that I don't like, or a worldview that runs counter to my narrative, to simply say, thank you, I'm not interested. Not get out of here with that stupidity or how can you be so blind and ignorant or there must be something fundamentally flawed with you to think and feel the way you do. You know, those are the easy narratives to inhabit. The more difficult practice is to recognize that I don't believe what those people believe and I don't fear what they fear and I don't want what they want. Embracing the empathetic stance of recognizing that without their life experiences, There really is no way to understand how their world is woven together. That like me, they probably want the best for their family and friends, desire the feeling of security, and hopefully don't outlive their bank account, and somehow find a way to unfold their days with meaning. Seems that tolerance is easy. It's just a matter of agreeing to disagree and deciding you can make do. Maybe even give yourself kudos for being understanding and able to live with the differences. But empathy, that's hard. Empathy requires us to understand somebody else from inside their own skin, to lay aside our biases and desires and get a sense of how someone else feels to themselves. Empathy is not about being nice and it's not about an intellectual understanding. And it's not giving up our own views or even agreeing with their perspective but rather softening just enough to know that if you'd live their life, you'd believe what they believe. I found this can really help dial down my own reactivity. You know, the funny thing about empathy is that it does not change the other person, but it might change us, give us a little more equanimity. So when we're presented with a situation that triggers something hateful or angry or spins up the 10,000 reasons on why they are wrong, we can instead from that equanimity simply say, thank you, I'm not interested. I found these words carry a different kind of connective weight when expressed from that oh-so-difficult empathetic stance of recognizing we are two very different people. And while I don't have to agree with your opinions, it helps if I can recognize that our worlds barely intersect. And then to simply say, thanks, I'm not interested. 
couple things here before we get into the show. First, you've heard me go on and on about business from time to time. It's a bit of a surprise to me that I've become kind of a booster of the acupuncture chamber of commerce. You know, there's nothing like running your own business to bring you face to face with any issues you might have about money, authority, or power. It's not that we, air quotes here, didn't learn about business and acupuncture school. So much as it is, we carry our own shadowy issues around money and authority. And so it cannot help but play itself out in our practices. In a couple of weeks, I'll have a group discussion about business here on the podcast. It's with a couple of acupuncturists who have learned a lot about themselves through building more than one iteration of their business. If the B word has you reaching for the chai hu jialonggu mu li tang, be sure to listen in in a couple of weeks for a heartfelt and thought-provoking conversation. And keep in mind that the way the Chinese write the word business implies the creation of meaning and something of significance. I'll have some more thoughts about that for you later in the show. If you want to learn this Am acupuncture method, but you missed the class in Seattle, I've got good news. We will have an online CEU offering coming up in the near future with a video that was recorded there. And if live classes are more your speed, then join us in May in Tucson or come to St. Louis at the end of June. Details? Where else? Over on the website. Thanks to Lhasa OMS for their longtime and dedicated support of Geological. As the largest supplier of acupuncture needles in the U.S., you can depend on them to have the kind of pins that you're looking for. Additionally, they have an extensive inventory of quality products for your acupuncture clinic. And if you're interested in CBD, they've got a wide range of quality products and plenty of educational material on this botanical over on the website. Lhasa is also dedicated to supporting the profession with educational resources like Geological, and they regularly sponsor webinars as well. Visit their website for a wealth of educational blog posts, summaries from their webinars, and the schedule of upcoming webinars that range from clinical methods to practice management. In addition to supporting you in your practice, Lhasa OMS also works with state organizations to help protect and promote the practice of acupuncture and East Asian medicine. And they donate supplies to help support clinics like the Charlotte Maxwell Clinic and their mission to help women in their struggles with cancer. Be sure to sign up for their mailing list so you don't miss out on any of the resources they have for supporting you and your practice. They also have terrific flash sales, but you have to be subscribed to get the heads up there. All right, that's enough jawboning for one day. Let's get into today's electrifying discussion about acupuncture. Hey friends, I've got Jeremy Steiner with me today. Jeremy is an acupuncturist and he has a deep interest and a lot of experience with something that I've always been a bit timid about, electroacupuncture. I'm not sure how many of you use electroacupuncture out there. I know that I've used it a little bit, but I never felt like I understood it. And so over the years, the electroacupuncture machine that I've got has gathered a lot of dust. I'm really looking forward to sitting down here with Jeremy 
and see if I can blow the dust off that old electroacupuncture machine and uh, figure out how to use this stuff. Jeremy, welcome to Geological. Thank you very much. I appreciate you asking me to come on here. For me, it's a wonderful opportunity to learn more about something I don't know much about and I'd like to. You know, it's also an opportunity to get some folks on the podcast talking about things that, you know, other practitioners might find useful. So I very much appreciate you making the time. Electroacupuncture, what got you involved in that? How did you get started with this? For about 10 years, I was practicing Kiko Matsumoto style of acupuncture, and I was also teaching and supervising her classes. Uh, And then I went back to school to obtain my doctorate of acupuncture and oriental medicine. And part of that program uh, required a 300-hour externship with under a medical doctor. So I chose a medical doctor in Montclair, New Jersey. His name was Dr. Noel Nowicki, and he was a medical acupuncturist. So he, he started as an internal medicine doctor, but then completed the acupuncture complete 2,000-hour program himself and then practiced electroacupuncture. So I did about 300 hours with him. And then when he wanted to retire, he sold me his practice and the rest is history. Well, Kiko Matsumoto, that is some deep stuff. It takes a lot of study and a lot of thought. Very intricate. Well, absolutely. She's always going back to the ancient Chinese classics and trying to apply that to modern day clinics. So I I learned a a lot about Chinese medicine from her. The rest I learned from Dr. Nowicki uh, regarding the use of electricity in medicine. Okay, so this is really an interesting soup, so to speak. On one hand, you're doing Kiko, you're really looking at classical stuff. On the other hand, electricity? Yeah. (laughs) Well, funny story about that. When I was myself you know, before I was licensed and I was in school, I actually attended a Grand Rounds by Dr. Nowicki. So this was about 15 years ago. And I remember sitting in the back of the room watching Dr. Nowicki use electricity on needles. And my friend and I were gabbing back and forth. We're saying, how barbaric is this? I will never use electricity. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, life is funny that way, right? I'm never going to XYZ and five years later, that's how you make your living. Yeah. (laughs) So, you know, when I started externship with Dr. Nowicki, I was blown away, one, by the level of disease severity of his patients. So here for 10 years, I'm practicing on patients that are jumping on the table after yoga class and They just want a a tune-up, basically. And now, um, all of a sudden, I'm plunged into his clinic where we're treating uh, stroke, paralysis, uh, cerebral palsy, all sorts of hardcore diseases, non-responding pain conditions. So my eyes were really opened, and I was kind of in shell shock for a little while. What kinds of results were you seeing? What kinds of changes, and how often were these treatments being done? Could you give us an idea? Take us through one patient's course of treatment. Yes. Well, it's well known 
that acupuncture in general can be effective for pain and inflammation. So his non-responding pain patients, he was able to get a long-lasting result typically in five treatments, about once per week for five treatments. And then he would push the patient's appointment out further and further so that, you know, if he'd see somebody twice a week for the first two weeks, then once a week for the next two weeks, then once every two weeks, once every three weeks, once every month, and then once every two months. So he was able to build a practice where many of his patients were only coming once every two months. And his schedule was booked out five weeks in advance. So the use of electricity can be very effective. And I think I can clear things up regarding the use of electricity so that after this podcast, we can see how electricity is harmonious with Chinese medicine. All right. Let's jump into that. (laughs) Okay. So the ancient Chinese were really nailed it when they came up with their physiology. So let's talk about this paradigm of acupuncture channels. So in my mind, what acupuncture channels are, are these groups of muscles. Now, muscles act like piezoelectric rechargeable batteries. So when we move or stretch or stress a muscle, it's actually generating electrons. And these electrons are being stored in the same muscle tissue, just like a rechargeable battery. Now, these electrons are shuttled on the fascia, which is the wiring system of the body, And it's shuttled into organs and cells for cellular regeneration. So another side to this is that we're always wearing ourselves out. In fifth grade science class, I remember learning that we get new skin cells every six weeks and a new nervous system every eight weeks. And my trachea is only 14 days old because we're always regenerating cells. Well, when I first learned that, I thought, wow, this can't be true. I mean, it sounds too good to be true. I have a new trachea that's only 14 days old. That sounds ridiculous. Well, it turns out to be true. So cells need electrons to regenerate, and they also need raw building blocks such as amino acids and the, the Gucci, the nutrition. And as long as it has these two things, the cells should be able to regenerate So chronic disease comes from the loss of the ability to regenerate new cells. Right. There would be a deficiency syndrome. Yes. So I'm always urging my students to go back to channel diagnosis because the stomach channel, for example, feeds the stomach organ full of electrons so that it can do its thing in cellular regeneration and stay healthy. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I am hearing about an electrical system that's not the nervous system. It's this other electrical system. It's generated through bioactivity, and it sounds a little bit like chi. Well, absolutely. I urge my students to not get caught up in the neurological system, to think that the acupuncture channels are the nervous system, because 
there's a separate, completely different system that is the acupuncture channels. And unless you, it's your joy and your passion to go into the nervous system and really focus everything on the nervous system, we should be separating the nervous system from the acupuncture channel system. Now, about electrons, electrons are the most benevolent healing force that I know of in this universe. So we know from cellular biology that normal cells need approximately 20 to 25 millivolts of electron charge to function properly. And when they need to regenerate, they need more than 50 millivolts of electron charge so these are things that are measurable, and by inserting electrons into a person's channel that's deficient, we can really help them. And this buys us time to become a detective and figure out why did that acupuncture channel drain off electrons, or why is it unable to hold its electron charge in the first place? And by going through this process of inserting electrons where they're deficient, as well as figuring out and stopping the electron leak, we can really fix and help a lot of people. I had acupuncture training 20 some odd years ago. We had someone teach us electroacupuncture. You know, back at that point, a little bit like you were saying earlier in the show, I was thinking, well, that seems kind of barbaric or it's like, well, the ancient Chinese didn't use electricity. Why, you know, why do I need to bother with this? I mean, it never made sense to me back then. It was always about, well, we're going to do some extra stimulation. We're going to get these muscles to respond. You know what? I can't even remember what I learned back then. But what I'm hearing you say here is there's a way to use electricity literally to tonify a channel. Absolutely. Uh, correct. A deficient channel. And there must have been something that drained off the electrons in the first place. Because if we have enough electrons in every channel, and if we have enough raw building blocks to build the cells, then we shouldn't be experiencing any disease because we are able to completely regenerate and get a whole new body. I mean, that's totally basic Chinese medicine. We learned that in the first month of school. <laughs> yes. Right? So tell me about how you bring in diagnosis to the picture. You know, an easy way to diagnose in Chinese medicine is to create a list of the patient's symptoms. Once we have this list of symptoms, we can go through each symptom one by one and write down next to it which channel is associated with that symptom. So let's talk about acid reflux, for example. Uh, we would write that down. And we would then write next to it the stomach channel. Then we could take their next symptom, let's say uh, macular degeneration. Well, we know that the lens of the eye is also on the stomach channel. Then uh, maybe this patient has a skin issue on the face uh, beneath the eye. So that, again, is the stomach channel. So you can go ahead and write down all the symptoms and then next to it, write down the channels associated with that. And you should be able to come up with which channels have some sort of electron leak. 
because they've got a symptom, something's going on there. Yes. Once we have that, then we then the treatment part is fairly easy. We can work on a channel, insert electrons into that channel, and generally get good results. Run me through a case. Run me through something simple. In, in fact, acid reflux is a great one because, yes. good Lord, how many of our patients have that? Absolutely. So back in the day, before our current five-element delineation, our chart, the older version had the stomach in the center with four elements around it. And this is something that Kiko showed me as well. So she drew an older version of the five-element chart, and the stomach was actually in the center. Right. Yeah, the earth is the center. The stomach is interesting. I told you, in order for cells to regenerate, they need one, enough electrons, but two, they need the Gucci. They need the raw building blocks, the amino acids, the vitamins, the nutrients. And so if somebody's experiencing acid reflux, I see that as a stomach yin vacuity because I, I see the stomach acid as yin. What happens with the stomach physiology is that Stomach acid should be approximately a pH of 2. And when it's not a pH of 2, it doesn't have enough acid. And when the stomach acid goes into the small intestine, if it has that pH of 2, it sends an electrical signal to the top of the stomach to close the sphincter so that nothing escapes out and acid reflux doesn't occur. So if weak stomach acid, let's say a 2.2 on the pH scale, hits the small intestine, that electrical signal does not get to the top of the stomach and the stomach does not close. And then patients experience acid reflux, which is the acid escaping out of the stomach and going to places it's not supposed to. Oh man, this is like classic deficiency resulting in an excess. Yes. And the stomach is crucial. It's one of the major things on my short list. And that's because it can be related to all sorts of things. If there's not proper stomach acid, the patient's not absorbing the precursors to make the neurotransmitters. And then we can see things like depression, anxiety, ADHD. If there's weak stomach acid, it's not sending a signal to the gallbladder to release its bile. And then we're getting all sorts of indigestion. So the stomach can be linked to so many different diseases and disorders. It's an interesting one. Well, you sound like the earth school. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, I am very blessed. I married an acupuncturist. Her name is Dr. Dow. And she taught me so much about the earth school. It's unbelievable. What did she teach you? Well, she is also an electroacupuncturist. And she taught me, one, that the electrons are basically the chi that the ancient Chinese always spoke of that flows through the channels. And she also helped me nail down the fact that stomach acid is yin. And another little tip is that electrons can be seen as pure yang healing energy, and that many diseases are a yin with a yang vacuity. So for this person 
who's got the reflux. The stomach acid is deficient. They're having these symptoms of excess with the uh, uprising stomach fluids. I'm hearing you say you need to add electrons to the stomach system. So how do you do that? Are you like needling stomach 36 and, and lighting it up with electricity? Or are you going through other channels that connect to the stomach channel? How would you actually uh, put that together in clinic? Okay, so it's a made-up case. So <laughs> let's continue with it. I would certainly investigate more of the stomach channel for this patient. So yes, I would want to insert electrons into the stomach channel. I would most likely choose stomach 36. And that's because it's a way of getting electrons into the channel. However, it's all, we all know that stomach 36 increases stomach acid production. And I just told you with an increase in stomach acid production, when it hits the small intestine, that should send a signal to close the sphincter at the top of the stomach and the acid reflux should go away. Now, we also would want to investigate further on the stomach channel. I know that the thyroid is also on the stomach channel. And I know that the thyroid controls the amount of mitochondria and the, the actual total body voltage per se comes from the thyroid. And also, we know the sinuses, the stomach goes to the sinuses also. So I need to investigate with this patient more to see what the problem is, because a sinus infection is a type of infection, and infections drain electrons as well. Electrons can be seen as antioxidants and if you think about an infection as a type of free radical, you can see how an infection would uh, sap up or waste electrons. So to answer your question, one, I would probably treat stomach 36. I'd insert electrons. I would use a what we call a mesoderm frequency or an endoderm frequency. So I know the stomach is the endoderm. The endoderm frequency is around four hertz. It resonates with all the endoderm. And these frequencies that I'm talking about, endoderm, mesoderm, it comes from a brilliant French neurologist named Noget. Oh, the ear guy. <laughs> yes, absolutely, the ear guy. So one, I would increase stomach acid using stomach 36. And there's another link up here Using epidemiology, we know that 90% of North America is deficient in iodine. Now, many of you know iodine is needed for the thyroid, but how many of you knew that iodine is a main ingredient in the production of stomach acid? I wasn't. So typically, my, my stomach problem patients, I will start them on uh, low-dose iodine supplementation because we're not in any rush and a lot of people have heard some bad things about iodine. However, I know it's an essential molecule and so I get good results by supplementing with all the main raw ingredients of stomach acid. So off the top of my head, I know the patient's going to need iodine, uh, salt, vitamin B1 because all these things are you know, make up stomach acid. There's about eight ingredients that make up stomach acid. So that's how I would approach it. I would treat the stomach directly using electroacupuncture, inserting electrons. 
I'd also get the beneficial effect of resonating with the stomach by using the endoderm frequency, increasing stomach acid, because that's a function of stomach 36, and also start supplementing all the raw building blocks of stomach acid, and then become a detective and rule out other problems that will be on the stomach channel in particular, such as a scar, which so if a scar cuts into the fascia, and I told you the fascia is the wiring system. Then you got to get a blockage. Yes, you get a blockage. So it's important to go through the short list and become a detective, uh, be focused once you figure out for this patient, once you figure out it's the stomach channel, now you need to go through and rule out everything on the stomach channel and try and fix everything but focused on the stomach channel. One of the things that I love about clinical work and one of the frustrating things about clinical work is on one hand, you want your patients to get better. They want to get better. Sometimes the patients don't, in fact, usually the patients don't care what you do. They just want you to be effective. And so I find myself in clinic, do I use a shotgun and try to help them get better? And if they get better, I got no idea really why they did. Or do I use a laser? Do I go focused in on one thing and then watch what happens in response to that very focused treatment? What I'm hearing you talk about is you're taking a very focused approach. You're looking at one channel. You're working with that very specifically. And then you can get all kinds of great feedback about was your treatment on, was your treatment off, and how do you need to shift it? That sounds correct. And, you know, this approach where you're so focused, it's easier to apply to a moderate or just a a light diseased patient. When you start getting into the severe, chronic, and complicated diseased patient, they sometimes come in with four or five channels out. So what I do in those cases is I treat on the first appointment, I treat as many of those channels as I can. And on the next appointment, when I reevaluate, I see which of those channels still is leaking. Because it's possible that somebody's channel actually does not have a leak, but somewhere along the line, they were exposed to something, let's say a chest x-ray, and they were unable to recover from that. However, in, if there is no leak, one treatment of inserting electrons should fix that particular problem for the patient. So I guess I'm saying that with the severe complicated patient, it can take three to five treatments before we're able to focus again, like a laser, to what their one or two channel problem is. There are some channels, there's a hole in the bucket, so to speak. And there's others, they're just a bit depleted. You fill that back up because things already have a basic integrity. You fill that back up, they're fine. That problem yes. disappears. Yes. The ones where there's some sort of ongoing deterioration, some sort of ongoing leakage, it's a good word, those are the ones that, that will show up later. But in these more complicated cases, you do have to kind of patch other, not so much patch other things up, but just fill them up. Yes. Uh, generally, I treat everything that I find on the first treatment. And by the second treatment, the picture is a lot clearer. Mm-hmm. 
I can see where the real electron leak is. There are times you need to use the laser, and there's times you need to take a more broad-spectrum approach because that's going to sort of sweep away the easy stuff, and then you see what's left. Yes, that generally works well. I want to get into the more difficult cases here in a moment, but before we do, I want to talk about frequencies. I want to talk about amounts of stimulation. Do you like really juice them <laughs> or you do something lighter? I've heard about microcurrent. Yes. I got no idea what it is other than it's supposed to be good stuff. When I think about frequencies and all that, I have no way of thinking about it. I don't know how to put that in my brain in a way that makes sense. Can you help me with that? Yeah, let's break this into several questions. So I'll answer the first question, and then you may have to remind me about the other questions. So the first question has to do with frequency. And I teach classes in electroacupuncture medicine where we go over all of this stuff. I also have a Facebook group with over 3,000 licensed acupuncturists. It's called Electroacupuncture Medicine. It's totally free to join. And we, there's a lot of useful information on this Facebook group, such as uh, frequency lists. We're basically working off of two different frequency lists. The first frequency list comes from Noget, and that's what frequency resonates with what tissue. Right off the bat, we know that 4.6 hertz resonates with the endoderm. 10 hertz resonates with the mesoderm, and a, more than 20 hertz resonates with the ectoderm. And when we start getting into the ectoderm, that's the nervous system, and each lobe of the brain has a different particular resonance and a different particular uh, neurotransmitter that's associated with that. So that's the first frequency list. The second frequency list that we're working off of stems out of research. So what frequency triggers the production of what neurotransmitter? So we know that the low frequency of one to four hertz triggers the body to produce beta endorphin and ACTH. So beta endorphin is endogenous morphine. We have a morphine factory inside our head and this is a very long-lasting and powerful painkiller. The other neurotransmitter that this low frequency produces is ACTH. Now, ACTH goes to the adrenal glands and triggers them to produce cortisol, which is an extremely powerful and natural steroidal anti-inflammatory. So right there, just by using this low frequency range of 1 to 4 hertz, we can get... Um, pain relief, and anti-inflammatory effect. But the list goes on. At 150 hertz, it's associated with norepinephrine, and we can use this frequency to unblock channels. So I'm not going to go through all the frequencies. No, we can get, we can get that on Facebook. Thank you for that. That's a fabulous resource. Now, when, you, when people come to take my classes, we have variables. So one variable is frequency. And another variable is amplitude. And that goes into the question you were asking about microcurrent versus millicurrent. And I want to say that electromedicine in general has been suppressed. 
it was starting to take off around the early 1900s, and many diseases were able to be treated using electromedicine. Even in hospitals, they were starting to use electricity to create electric nerve blocks so that they didn't have to inject chemicals to get uh, nerve blocks for surgeries. So we're limited in the machines that we have access to. They have to be uh, medically approved by the FDA for us to use them in our practice, and this greatly limits our machines. So the question of microcurrent versus millicurrent, it's just talking about different intensities or different amounts of amplitude. You know, 500 microamps is equal to 0.5 milliamps. So that anything over a thousand microamps, we start measuring as milliamps. Mm -hmm. Okay, I see that now. And the other thing is that when we're using acupuncture needles, we're bypassing the electrical resistance of the skin. And this allows us to use a much less amplitude. Whereas if, we're, if somebody wants to use those TENS pads, you have to, you know, if you use a TENS pad and you put five milliamps into the skin, you're only getting approximately 300 microamps into the body because of the electrical resistance of the skin. Electrons are electrons, and we will get health benefits simply by using them in Chinese medicine. And it's much more efficient to deliver them through a needle. Yes, and much more comfortable for the patient. And as well, it's much more guided. So if the muscles are batteries and the fascia is the wiring system, we want to get our needles or our electrons down to the fascia at the least. And if we're going through the skin without needles, we don't, those, those electrons are probably dispersed on the cutaneous nerves or in the fat layer, and they're not really getting into the acupuncture channels like we want them to. So the other question I believe you had was treatment time. So one of our variables is treatment duration, and this has to be very specific also. Um, the body is broken up into the autonomic nervous system, which is the sympathetic, the fight or flight, and the parasympathetic, which is the rest and recovery. And by using treatment time, we can increase one or the other. So if we want to increase the gas pedal, the sympathetic system, we want our treatment to be 12 minutes or less with the electricity. And if we want to increase the rest and recovery mode, the parasympathetic mode, then we want to treat longer than 20 minutes. Wow. T tell me more about that. What's going on here? How is it that one can flip into the other? just because of time length. In pharmaceutical land, many of their pharmaceuticals are grouped into what does it do to the autonomic nervous system? So does a medicine increase the sympathetic activity or does it increase the parasympathetic activity? So for the intestines, a, a constipation issue, I know that those intestines do not have enough parasympathetic input. So that if I increase parasympathetic input or tone going into the intestines, that that patient's intestine should start moving again and their bowel movement will come. 
So I don't know exactly why 12 minutes and less of stimulation increases sympathetic and 20 minutes or more increases parasympathetic. However, uh, it's very clear in the clinic that this is the case. As we're talking about this, and you're talking about the intestines and, and increased parasympathetic tone means the intestines work better. One of the things I've noticed is people get on my table, often, especially if they've been here before, sort of a Pavlovian thing going on, they'll get on the table and they'll already begin to relax because they've had an experience of, of calm. Yes. I start to take their pulse and their intestines rumble. Or I, or I just put in a needle and their intestines rumble. And they always get embarrassed, right? It's like, oh, I'm sorry. It's like, no, 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 no. That's a good sign as far as I'm concerned because they're moving into that parasympathetic place. I'm thinking here of patients, I see them from time to time. I, I think all of us have. We ask about their digestion. It turns out that they've been constipated forever, right? I mean, ever since they were a kid, they haven't really been able to move their bowels with any kind of regularity. And often these people have some sort of psycho-emotional anxiety or depression or something like that going on. As we're having this conversation, I'm wondering if these are people who have been sort of locked into, from an early age, locked into some sort of hyper-sympathetic tone, maybe something in their family, maybe some trauma, who knows? But they've got this higher sympathetic tone that is their base operating normal. And it shows up in their intestines not working so well. You get that person's intestines working better. You get them into more of a parasympathetic mode. I wonder what happens to their anxiety and depression. Have you seen this kind of thing? Absolutely. So we live in a crazy world where we are exposed to way too much stressors. And these stressors are putting people into sympathetic lockup. Uh, their bodies can no longer handle the amount of stress that this world gives us. And so ex almost all the severely diseased patients, they're, they're in sympathetic lockup. And it's our job to switch them back into rest and recovery mode. So let's go back to the stomach example. The stomach needs parasympathetic input to function better, to produce acid, because this is our rest and digest function. So with parasympathetic input into the stomach, it can then increase its acid so that it can digest things like precursors, precursors to GABA, which would then show us that somebody with a weak stomach or somebody in sympathetic lockup who doesn't have enough of GABA gets anxiety. And somebody who has sympathetic lockup with a weak stomach and, in, and not enough serotonin or they're not absorbing the precursors to serotonin can get this depression. So yeah, it's our job to, for the most part, get them out of this sympathetic lockup. And electroacupuncture is wonderful for that. Regular acupuncture is wonderful for that also, uh, although the treatment times need to be a bit longer than when you're using electrons. And that's because with the electrons, you're actually 
inputting basically chi so that the system can take and, and utilize that stuff. Yes. Electrons are all over the world. The Earth is the hugest source of electrons, which I told you are free, sorry, are antioxidants. Now, the Earth functions as a giant battery. It's being struck by lightning right now, uh, thousands of times per minute. And these are electrons coming from the heavens and being stored in the Earth. So that when you use a needle without electric stim, I believe electrons from the surface of your body are now getting input into the system. They're being channeled inside. Yeah, but probably at a slower rate than when we're using our machines to pump them in there. We're going to take a short break here. I hope you've been enjoying this podcast conversation and already gleaned something useful from it. So back for a moment to this thing about business and how you define it. You know, how you define something profoundly colors how you view it. In Chinese, the word for business is made up of two characters, sheng yi. Sheng means to create, like the sheng of the sheng cycle of the five elements. Yi, fourth tone, means meaning. It's made up of the characters for sound and heart. And it's the same yi as the spirit of the spleen and is often translated as significance. Sheng yi means business, but you can also read it as making meaning or creating something of significance. So the next time you have your tail in a knot about air quotes here, business issues, consider that your task is to create deeper meaning in your work or generate something of significance. You know, I've created geological as I think these conversations carry something of significance, something of another practitioner's experience that can have an impact and meaning on your practice. I've created the geologician portion of the website so you can contribute to this endeavor by becoming a member of the podcast. In addition to feeling the satisfaction of knowing that you're helping to support a podcast that you love, there are a few special goodies available for contributing subscribers to the podcast. For those details, head over to geological.com and click on the Geologician menu to help keep a little inspiration in the teacup. Thanks for your consideration. And now let's get into the second half of the show. There was something a little provocative. I want to come back to this, talking about machines. Because earlier you were saying that back in the early part of last century, electromedicine was starting to come into its own. Um, I suspect there's various reasons why it didn't. And it sounds like there are certain machines we have access to now. But there's other machines, I think I just heard you allude to, that we don't have access to. They're not FDA approved. What else is out there? Yes. Well, one thing I want to say is in the early 1900s, not only electromedicine was coming into the center, but electricity in general was coming into the center. It took somewhere along the line, it took a turn and all the most benevolent electrical technologies were suppressed. And this included electromedicine. So why would the FDA, which is linked to the pharmaceuticals 
companies, why would they want to fix health problems using physics with electricity and they won't be making a lot of money when they can instead fix or try to fix disease with chemicals, chemistry, and then this is something they can charge a lot more for. So one of the reasonings for the suppression of electromedicine is its inability to make money for the powers that be. Now, our machines, the the problem with our machines is that the circuitry inside can be a lot better. So if healthy cells need 20 to 25 millivolts of electron charge, right there, we know that our machines, we want our machines to put out more than that. And if they need 50 millivolts of electron charge, we want our machines to put out more than 50 millivolts of electron charge. What I've noticed with these machines is that the slow frequency, let's say one hertz, it's pretty good. It shows a nice, beautiful waveform on the oscilloscope. But when you start getting into the faster frequencies, the cheap circuitry makes these waveforms break down and get dirty, per se. The waveform gets dirty. So that, yes, we're still getting fantastic results with these faster frequencies like 150 hertz. However, it could be so much better results with better machines. Well, why don't we make better machines? I mean, is there a reason why someone doesn't manufacture something that works better? In order to get something FDA approved, we're looking at, I'm guessing, approximately $20 million. Wow. So we would need to get all this money together design the machine, get the patents, and then go for the FDA approval. You know, that's a whole rabbit hole, which I think I don't want to go down at this moment, but we might want to come back and talk about that in a separate show. I will add one thing in there. Yes. There is a orthopedic surgeon. His name is Robert Becker. He wrote the book Body Electric. Oh, man. I read that back before I went to acupuncture school. It was mind-blowing. Yes. And so our machines are currently biphasic or alternating current, which is fine. However, the body and the acupuncture channels are set up more as a DC circuit because the electrons tend to flow from the muscles in one direction into the organs and into the cells. So Dr. Becker was using machines that were DC current. And he was able to achieve some regenerative properties. He was working, his projects involved how to regenerate limbs. And I believe he was able to regenerate fingertips using electrons. Are DC current machines available today? Or was that something, some special mad scientist stuff that he had? Well, they are available, but extremely limited. And I'm not sure if there's any DC machine that's FDA approved. So I did find some DC machines available in Australia. And I spoke to one of the engineers a couple weeks ago. And they are so proud of their latest achievement, which was 
using their DC machine, they were able to prevent a diabetic patient's leg from being amputated. So electrons can be very helpful in wound care and regeneration as well. I want to talk about safety because, I mean, when it comes to electricity, I probably should have been paying more attention in school. All I really know is never lick a light socket and don't stick a screwdriver (laughs) in it. Stuff your parents tell you. When I think about putting needles in my patient and then hooking them up to electricity, there's this part of my mind that thinks about putting cables on a battery to jumpstart a car. And I'm always like nervous about it. Do I have this thing on right? Am I going to blow something up? Talk to us a bit about safety and, and how to make sure we know that we're doing our patients good and not doing them harm. So this goes back to the short list of variables. If we're keeping an eye on all the variables, then generally the treatment is safe and we'll be doing our patient no harm. Let's take, for example, the variable of amplitude, or that, that's the strength of how, in practice, that's how much the patient is feeling the stimulation. And when they're feeling a light, non-pain stimulation, that tends to increase their non-pain in their body. Whereas if we increase the amplitude too much so that it's a painful stimulation, that tends to increase their pain. So if we're using too much amplitude, that can potentially do the patient harm, mainly by causing them pain during the treatment. We're training the person's nervous system in some sense to either get out of pain or to stay in pain or increase pain. Mm -hmm. Well, I would suspect if they're having pain with the treatment, they're not going to slip into parasympathetic mode. You're actually bringing on sympathetic. That's true as well. So there is some safeties that are hardwired directly into the units. And that is the fact that in order to get to an amplitude of 10, I first have to turn the knob past zero and then one and then two. So, you know, practically, we're never going to give the patient too much amplitude if we just go slow be mindful and take our time in turning up the amplitude and possibly even turning it down uh, because the patient doesn't even need to feel the stimulation for the treatment to work. We use the feeling. We say, okay, tell me as soon as you feel something. And the reason why we ask the patients that is because our machines are not good. If we had a machine that had a display that showed us how much electrons are going into the body, we wouldn't even need to ask the patient, tell me when you feel it. We would just turn it on to a certain level below feeling and still know that the electrons are getting into the body and into the channels. Would you say then that different people, depending on their system, state of health, state of illness, the amount of electrons going in is going to be different? Yes, and also the needle placement plays a role, the amount of electrical resistance. So in other words, if your needle is, you nailed it, it's in an acupuncture point, you use a lot less amplitude than if your needle is off the point, for example. And then you need to turn up more amplitude so that the electrons can still get to where they're going. 
How on earth would you measure that? <laughs> well, they are measurable. Um, fancy ohm meters or measurements of resistance, they are measurable. However, I don't think we need to measure in order to really uh, practice Chinese medicine. I don't think we need to measure. It's not mandatory to measure electrical resistance. So they, they make these point finders and these point finders are measuring the electrical resistance of the skin. And everywhere there's an acupuncture point, the electrical resistance drops significantly. This is kind of a side question. I don't go to health fairs very much, but I've been to health fairs. And sometimes there's an acupuncturist, but more often there's a chiropractor who also does acupuncture. Yeah. And, and they, got this, they got this machine and you hold these things and it gives a readout. This channel's this, this channel's that. You know, da 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 da, and because there's something on a piece of paper, the patient goes, "Oh, this is real." <laughs> right. So, so <laughs> what's going on here? Right. So, I do think those can be helpful because you you can print something out, and it's a talking piece, and you can go over the patient's uh, treatment protocol, and you can use that for diagnosis. And these machines are measuring electrical resistance, and um, not all the machines are created equal. So I have seen a machine that can tell us the amount of electrons in the channel so that if we know that 25 millivolts is normal, so you go through and measure all these channels and also left versus right, and let's say somebody's stomach channel is showing as five millivolts, we know that that channel does not have enough electron charge and there's something on that channel draining it off. And then we can show the patient on the piece of paper, we can circle, look, your left stomach channel doesn't have enough electron charge, what is draining that off? Do you have a root canal in the stomach tooth, for example? Do you use this in your practice? Do you find this this kind of a measurement device to be helpful? Eventually, I may use it in my practice. And that's only because it is helpful to show the patient a test, to show them what we're going to be working on and where their problems exactly are. Now, this the machinery I'm referring to can be around $10,000. So I'm currently not using that machine. Instead, I use the symptom list and you know, marking down what channel. You're an old school doctor. With that symptom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> what about tongue and pulse and our usual uh, favorites for, for diagnosis like that? Does that play into the work that you do? And do you see changes in pulses and tongues? Oh, absolutely. And I'm more focused on the tongue than the pulse. Not, I believe fully in the pulse. I didn't acquire or spend the time acquiring too much skill in the pulse, but I encourage everybody who's into the pulse to stay with it. Because the heart is innervated by both the sympathetic and the parasympathetic, uh, they have machines that measure heart rate variability, and this can tell us the quality of the parasympathetic or sympathetic. And the Chinese really nailed it. I do believe you can tell disease completely from the pulse. You can diagnose disease because of the innervation of the, of the entire autonomic nervous system going into the heart. Now, tongue is interesting. It 
is always accurate. So for example, I go through my symptom list, I write down what channels is associated with that. And then if I consult the tongue, 100% of the time, you will see indications on the tongue for the channels that you wrote down. And this goes back to the ancient Chinese. They really nailed it when they came up with their acupuncture channels and physiology and electrons is qi. So what I hear you doing, you use our old school diagnostics, so to speak. And then you're using acupuncture, but you're also bringing in the modern innovation of adding a little extra qi in a very specific and in a very targeted and focused way. Yes. And then o- over the course of three to five treatments, a severe patient, we should be able to fully diagnose them and permanently correct their problem. Wow. We could probably go on for a while, but we're going to need to wind this down here in a moment. I want to ask you about actually something I've been seeing in my clinic lately. I have no idea why. I've had this total like spate of uh, people coming with Bell's palsy. It's like out of the blue. You know, you don't see it for years. All of a sudden, I got several patients with it. I'd love to get your take on treating Bell's palsy using these methods. Absolutely. So one thing is the channels associated with Bell's palsy, and that's certainly the stomach channel. Mm -hmm. And Bell's palsy comes from an inflammation of the facial or trigeminal nerve or both. Mm -hmm. Which brings us into gallbladder a little bit. Right. Gallbladder channel. And these nerves, they pass through a very narrow, narrow canal. Now, I was taught the name of this canal is the fallopian canal. Uh, but there are other names for it. It's on the side of the face. And because it's so narrow, any inflammation on these nerves will cause a squeeze off of these nerves. And, and nerves in the entire body don't like pressure. So squeezing off this nerves lead to the Bell's palsy, the paralysis, the nerves no longer transmitting to the muscles. It can also lead to trigeminal neuralgia, which is that facial pain. Um, And whether if it does come from a virus, then we want to boost the immune system as well. So we have a quick and dirty protocol for Bell's palsy, and that is stomach seven and gallbladder three. And so it's on the side of the face in, in front of the ear. And it's those two channels that we came up with. I said stomach and you said gallbladder. So they're right there. We're inserting electrons into those two channels. We're also able to stimulate the facial nerve and we can stimulate the facial nerve to secrete neurotransmitters. So the protocol is stomach seven, gallbladder three, and LI4. Now, LI4, we know, is the master of the face. The first treatment, we use a low frequency for more than 20 minutes. And this generally does wonders because now these nerves are secreting this anti-inflammatory and pain reliever. And if we get rid of the inflammation, it frees the flow of the nerve and the problem goes away. At the same time, we have a treatment called STE36. 
it's stomach 36 and the S-T-E, the E part is extra. So we, we actually uh, insert four needles into stomach 36 and use 10 hertz. And in the clinical research done by Rutgers in 2016, they were able to use stomach 36 on mice and, they, and one treatment saved their life from sepsis. So we apply this treatment to our patients, and this is how we're able to modulate the immune system and really try to prevent them from getting the Bell's palsy in the future. Now, this treatment's going to work, and it's going to be spectacular, but while this treatment's going or after this treatment's going, we, we then have to become a detective and see what drained the electrons from the stomach channel, what drained the electrons mm-hmm. from the gallbladder channel in the first place. That's right. I want to bring our attention to something. Have you seen a tooth chart, a tooth acupuncture chart? I've heard of them, but I haven't. It's nothing I've gone into. So it's big in Europe. And I remember back in school in 2004, seeing this acupuncture tooth chart and thinking, oh, yeah, each channel goes through the teeth. And oh, yeah, right. That's true. Well, it's really true. And the most severe patients generally have a tooth issue in the specific channel of that tooth. So for the Bell's palsy patient, I know that the molars are the stomach tooth. And so I want to become a detective and make sure that they don't have something like a root canal in that molar tooth. What if they did? Well, if they did, then I would send them for a cone beam CT scan. This is a special type of scan which can show infection in a root canal from all different angles. So you're checking out to make sure the root canal hasn't gone bad. Yes. And if there is an infection in the root canal, infections drain electrons. And because it's on the stomach tooth, mm-hmm. right there is our answer. Mm-hmm. That there, the infection in the stomach tooth was draining electrons. And until we correct that, we're never going to get a permanent cure for this patient. Yeah, no, that, but that's great. Take the, the illness they've had and go, what else is here? Help them prevent problems in the future. Yes. Okay, one last quick question, and then, and then we're going to put a bookmark in it for the moment. When you say a low frequency for 20 minutes with this, what's a low, fre- what's a low frequency? Between one to four hertz. One to four hertz. And you're going to want to turn up the amplitude until they tell you that they feel it, and then slowly turn it down until they just barely feel it or don't feel it at all. And then you're going to want to make sure that the stimulation stays for more than 20 minutes. Thank you. I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how this goes. It's always fun to take something and be able to immediately walk into the clinic and investigate. Absolutely. Yeah. Jeremy, anything else that you'd like to share with our geological listeners before we sign off for today? Well, I, I am so thankful and grateful to be on this podcast. And I want to encourage all your listeners to follow your joy and continue with the great work you're doing in Chinese medicine. I look forward to meeting some of you. I really enjoy teaching acupuncturists. 
everything I know. And uh, we have a advanced class coming up in March in California. And I also released a foundational course. It's a video course, which is available online at electro-acupuncturemedicine.com. Besides that, I'm wishing all of you peace and bliss. Great. Well, thank you. We'll make sure all that's on the show notes page. So uh, if you want to know more about this stuff, just pop over to the show notes page and we'll have lots of links for you there. Jeremy, thank you so much. Thank you. I hope that you have enjoyed today's podcast. You know, prior to this, all I really knew about electricity was never lick a light socket. So I know I've learned a lot from this. I hope that you've gleaned something that's useful and that you might be able to take into your practice. If you enjoy the podcast, there's a couple ways that you can support it. First of all, share it with your friends. You know, if something's good and it's helped you, share it with your community. We all get better when we learn from each other. A couple other ways to support the podcast, you can go to the iTunes store and rate the show and be sure to leave a little comment. And finally, you can become a Chia Logician, five bucks a month, helps to keep some inspiration in the teacup here. You can join and become a Chia Logician. It's just five bucks a month. It helps keep the servers running and the software updated. As ever, thank you for listening. And hey, remember, I'm that geeky guy who loves getting postcards in the mail. Send me one and be sure to tune in again next week.